we have a great lecture to look forward to by Patrice Putrus. Because this is a lecture that the Institute hosts together with our friends at the Institute of Historical Research, and there in particular, the Modern German History Seminar. Some of the conveners of the Modern German History Seminar are with us tonight as well. And they chose, and of course, we are very happy about that, Professor Putrus to give our lecture tonight. And I will now turn to introducing Patrice Putrus. He teaches and conducts research at the University of Erfurt in Germany at the moment. And he started his career with the contemporary history of the German Democratic Republic, former East German state. In the mid to late 1990s, he wrote a much discussed dissertation, which also has appeared as a book. And that was in 2002. And the book has the wonderful title, and I translate from the German, The Invention of the Gold Broiler. And the Gold Broiler was the East German name for a broiled chicken? Fried or? chicken. Fried chicken. For fried chicken, yes. And so this was a dissertation about the interwoven nature of politics and ruling interests in the GDR and consumerism from below. And that was a dissertation at the University of Viadrina at Frankfurt Oder. He then held postdoctoral positions at the Center for Contemporary Historical Research in Potsdam, the ZZF, Zentrum für Zeithistorische Forschung, also at the Ruhr University Bochum, at the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. And he has since then taught European and German history of mainly the 20th century, but also the 19th century at the Martin Luther University in Halle and in Vienna and currently at Erfurt University. And he has, I think since about a year or so, maybe one and a half years, he has published a book about the history of asylum and migration or forced migration. And that came out in 2019 in German. It's called Umkämpftes Asyl, from Nachkriegsdeutschland bis zur Gegenwart. And I, I think what we will be hearing today will also be on this same topic. And there have been a lot of um, media discussions and very lively talk shows and discussions about the arguments of this book. He is also uh, well known as an editor of several volumes on the contested legacies with which the East German state had to deal with, including national socialist legacies, but also publications about migration and the perception of strangers and xenophobia in East Germany. And I can wholeheartedly recommend those publications to you, but they're all in German. So, um, Patrice, your topic for tonight is Contested Asylum, the history of the 2015 refugee crisis. And I really look forward to your lecture. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for this very kind introduction, Christina. I'm very happy that I'm able to give this lecture today, but I'm a little bit sad that I'm not in London, actually. <laughs> you know, partly because for me as an East German, it is still something important to visit these places. And it has still some magic for me. And to have friends there, <laughs> As you know, is there something very nice. So I'm very happy to be here with you. Today's lecture will summarize the main points of my latest book, as Christina already mentioned, on the very contested issue of asylum in Germany 
starting in the post-war period, which means after 1945 until the present. Please bear with my German accent. I will do my best to speak as clear as possible. In any case, at the end of the lecture, I would, uh, would be happy to answer any question that comes up. And I will also provide at the end of the lecture several other readings on the topic in English, of course. So let's get started. In 1949, a provision on asylum was included to the new German constitution called the Basic Law, das Grundgesetz. It stated that person persecuted on political grounds have the right to asylum. Article 16, paragraph 2, sentence 2 in the constitution. This provision was later amended in 1993, but in its original form, it is unique in refugee law for its concise wording and broad asylum protection. Foreign refugees, which is very important, foreign refugees were guaranteed that they would not be turned away, expelled or extradited from Germany or from West Germany. It also offered labor, social and family rights similar to those granted to German citizens. Considering the history of German citizenship, this is quite surprising. Experts are divided on how to explain this extraordinarily liberal legal norm. Was it due to the personal immigration experiences of the founding mothers and fathers of the basic law during the National Socialist era? Or was it related to the emphasis placed on uh, universal civil and human rights in the light of the National Socialist tyranny. One thing is for sure. The parents of the Constitution concisely choose to adapt a generous provision on asylum. Of course, this general generosity encountered objections. Even in the Parliamentary Council, the Constitutional Assembly of West Germany. We can find, in the minutes of this, we can find arguments that broad asylum rights would be a threat to inner order, a burden to the social justice system, and a threat to Germany's cultural and ethnic identity. But due to the special situation post-war West Germany's, these objections were not included in the basic law. However, it is clear from the very beginning that there were discrepancies between the asylum law in the constitution and the attitudes of a part of the West German political elite. These conflicts created tensions, contradictions, and dynamics, which eventually led to the change in the asylum policy, sometimes in a more liberal directions and sometimes in a more restrictive one. In this presentation, I will show that the shifting policies and attitudes towards immigrants since the post-war period are an inherent part of modern German history and society. I believe that these shifts were a compromise between, on the one hand, West Germany's liberal asylum laws and emphasis on human rights, and on the other hand, traditional political notions of belonging to the German nation based on ethnicity. 
From that perspective, the 1993 amendment mentioned earlier was much more than a technical change of a single issue. It was, in my view, a fundamental act in founding the unified Germany. Supporters of, of the reform, or called the asylum compromise, thought that it would end debates on immigration. But this was not the case because it ignored Germany's history as a country shaped by immigration. In order to demonstrate this, I will explain how political refugees were perceived and treated by the German public, how the constitutional law was implemented, the condition under which it changed differed in West and East Germany, and that point, and at what point this issue became a major subject of public and political interest that led to the 93 Amendment. Doing so can help us understand why current conflicts and debates about immigration, in particular surrounding the notion of German identity, continue to arise today. As we have said, the founders of the Constitution clearly had a liberal, generous asylum law in mind. The 1949 provision granted refugees nearly full citizenship status. This went against traditional definitions of German citizenship, which generally only included people of German descent. The new law also meant that Germany would become a refuge for politically persecuted people. Historically, Germany in its various forms had been a place from which refugees fled rather than a safe haven they fled to. This was even the case before the National Socialistic Dictatorship, when many people fled to avoid persecution due to their political views, religious beliefs, or their ethnic background. World War II uh, produced a lot of refugees in Europe with a particular result. And I think it is still important to mention that. It led to a historically unprecedented ethnic homogenization of the population in European states and especially in Germany. Germany lost most of all territories with multi-ethnic population. In addition, many ethnic Germans were repatriated back to the reduced German territories. In both East and West Germany, this unique demographic configuration further reinforced the idea of a German Germany as an unconditional national normal case. And later on, this would have substantial consequences for the treatment of foreign migrants and even for refugees in West Germany. In the newly founded Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany, some refugees represented at the very beginning a threat to inner peace and stability and a burden forced upon West Germans, as many newspapers, for instance, commentated. For example, in 1950, after the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia, Bohumil Lausmann, the anti-communist and social democrat vice prime minister sought asylum in West Germany. 
anti-communist refugees were generally well received in West Germany during the Cold War. However, uh, Lausmann was not welcomed due to past comments that he had made justifying the expulsion of German minorities from Bohemia and Moravia after the Second World War. This comment called into question the post-war myth that Germans were themselves victims of the Second World War. The furious public reaction that Lausmann provoked contradicted the principles of the asylum provision in the Constitution. But this did not seem to strike anyone at the time, because the confrontation with communism was not yet an overall dominant issue. Lausmann was not considered a natural ally in the Federal Republic and was forced to live in exile in Austria. And in Vienna, he was eventually kidnapped by the Czechoslovakian Secret Service and died in prison in Prague in the mid-60s. In clear contrast to this case, the West German public and legal system showed kind of sympathy for a group of seven convicted Dutch SS troopers at the same time, who had escaped prison in 1951 and sought refuge in West Germany under the 49 law. The Dutch government insisted on their extradition, but the West German police were clearly reluctant. And in the end, one of them was turned over to the Dutch authorities, but only because of the direct interventions of the British occupied power. Both episodes show an obvious reluctance to break with the Nazi past at that time. Refugees who did not fit into the image of West German society faced public threats of deportation, threats that went unchallenged on a political level. On the other hand, anyone who appeared to be a victim of the allied powers enjoyed both the status of refugee and thus a very warm welcome in West Germany. With these cases in mind, or these examples in mind, it is not a surprise that these post-war attitudes were more influential in practical procedures of granting asylum than the constitutional law itself. Three and a half years after the enactment of the 49 provision, the first rules governing the procedure for granting asylum came into effect under the Asylum Ordinance of 1953. This ordinance, which bypassed parliamentary approval, was based on the highly restrictive 1938 National Socialist Police Decree on Foreigners. This ordinance granted broad power to local policy authorities when making decisions on immigration. These decisions were often based on current political interests and not on the merit of the individual case. Asylum numbers were limited to around 3,000 persons per year, but the process was still very long, often taken over two years. So although the 49 provision guaranteed a universal right of asylum, this was not reflected in the initial period of West Germans' asylum practices. Indeed, the 1953 ordinance was used to reject foreign refugees and actually to bypass the 49 provision. 
The Cold War challenged this self-centered uh, attitude among uh, West Germans, a large part of whom saw themselves as victims of the Second World War. But new reports in mass media of the violent suppression of the Hungarian Revolution in 1959 and later on on the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 inspired a great deal of sympathy and solidarity for refugees who were victims of communist persecution. These displays reflected an emotional mixture of long-standing anxieties about the Soviet Union and West Germans' emerging sense of belonging to the democratic West. Against this backdrop, West Germany regarded all East European refugees as allies in fight against communism. And for instance, approximately 30,000 refugees were admitted in a most open and non-bureaucratic process. The emotional and political responses to the court war changed how the asylum law was interpreted. Court decision and new laws gradually brought asylum in practice in line with the constitution and were part of the general trend towards liberalization of the legal system. This culminated in 1966 in the 1966 decision to allow unsuccessful Eastern European asylum seekers to stay in West Germany because politicians thought that handing these individuals back to communist dictatorship would cause them undue hardship. And this provision lasted until 1988. However, following the coup against Chile's leftist government in 1973, West Germany also accepted that more than 2,000 Chilean political refugees granting asylum to radical left-wing victims of the Pinochet regime and demonstrates the domestic stability of West Germany's political culture and the growing emphasis on universal human rights for victims of dictatorships of all political views. A court ruling on the 49 provision seemed to cement this shift. This decision said that granting asylum should be based on the political persecution of the asylum seeker and not on the state interests. However, the political disputes that surrounded this case exposed the fault lines in West Germany's liberalized asylum policy. And so this case was also the turning point towards a period of polarized debates about immigration in West Germany. West Germany's early refugee immigration policy has widely seen as a success story, especially following the cases such as Hungary, Czechoslovakia, or even Chile. But there were elements that contradict this narrative. As early as 1959, West Germany's political community was already discussing the issue for foreign refugees misusing the right to abode. For example, in 1958, Algerian migrants fled to Germany during the War of Independence from France. This severely tested West Germany's refugee policy. Instead of offering political asylum, the Ministry of Domestic Affairs was informed about 
the violent practices in Algeria. The Ministry of Domestic Affairs sided with the French government in order to protect West Germany's foreign political interests. To compound this, the ministry expressed its general but fundamental concerns regarding the acceptance of non-European migrants. The West German government feared of so-called dangerous foreigners has eclipsed the refugee constitutional right to protection. This became part of the general pattern of refusing non-European refugees in the coming decades. I could explain several other examples, for instance, the refugees from the Biafra war in the late 60s. So on the other hand, that made the Chilean example so extraordinary. This policy contradiction also emerged in approach of lawmaking. In 1956, the Ehring Act in German Ausländergesetz replaced the old 1953 ordinance and is a good example of the tensions between Germany's willingness to accept victims of communism and defensive stance towards refugees from outside Europe. The 1965 act was a way of distancing West Germany from the Nazi past by modernizing laws towards foreigners. However, it failed to define political persecution and led to long delays in granting asylum. In fact, it was so flexible that it allowed the West German government to apply it as liberal as necessary and as restrictive as possible. It's a quote from Ulrich Herbert. The 1965 Act sidestepped a clear stance on asylum, yet it was still too liberal for some, in particular the Bavarian state government. Especially the Bavarian Minister of Domestic Affairs condemned federal politicians for opening the floodgates in the 60s. Bavaria's geographical location made it the primary destination of transit point for migrants heading to West Germany during the early years of the Federal Republic. The federal office that preceded foreign refugees was located in the small Bavarian or Franconian, as somebody loved to say, town of Zirndorf. And so the Bavarian state government essentially established itself as a gatekeeper on all asylum issues already in these early years. The lengthy Asylum process led to tensions and violent disturbance in Zirndorf's refugee camp and in its surrounding. But the reaction of the Bavarian population and politicians ignored the difficult living conditions at the refugee reception center. Instead, the disturbance and unrest were taken as a clear proof of the threat that foreigners posed to the West German community. As a result, words like misuse, burden, and threat made their way into the vocabulary of government institutions in the 60s, though it was not until the 80s when these tensions dominated popular perspectives on asylum. Ultimately, it was no longer foreign policy or human rights that drove asylum policies in West Germany but rather issues surrounding labor migration. Once the active recruitment in the early 1970s, the active recruitment of foreign 
workers were stopped. Asylum became the only possible way for immigrants to enter West Germany. This restrictiveness went hand in hand with a more widespread change in migration movements across Europe. Modern forms of communication beamed news of global conflict into West German households. Modern transport enabled refugees from these regions to travel to the country to seek asylum, at least in theory. But West Germans saw the multi-dimension changes in migration as manifesting itself in one key issue, the continuing growth in asylum seekers. But it was not only the overall number of people arriving in West Germany that was important. The public was anxious that more and more non-European were arriving. Up until the 1970s, refugees had uh, come primarily from the communist dictatorships of Central and Eastern Europe. The proportion of so-called Eastern Bloc refugees fell in the early 70s, but the entirety of asylum seekers rose, as did the percentage of non-European refugees. Once again, the state government of Bavaria pushed for a shorter, more restrictive recognition procedure. In particular, they focused on Zirndorf, the only refugee camp in West Germany at the time. In 1974, the Federal Ministry of Domestic Affairs decided that asylum seekers would be accommodated across all federal states. As a result, there are constant conflicts between the federal government and the state about the responsibility and cost for housing asylum seekers. The emerging crisis in public finance and in the late 70s and early 80s combined with ambivalent attitudes towards refugees led to cross-party courts for accelerate and tighten up asylum procedure. By 1980, refugees and asylum policies was already a crucial aspect of West Germany's domestic agenda and the public sphere. This strengthened the Christian Democratic Party, the Conservatives, who were in opposition at that time. They were able to capitalize on the social liberal government's hesitant approach to immigration and asylum. Between the late 70s and the early 90s, the pressure on the constitution right to asylum grew. Just one example, a total of 17 stricter regulation and limitations of asylum procedure were put in place during that time. Although there was a slight dip of asylum applications when the CDU came to power in 1962, this figure never dropped far under 100,000 asylum seekers per year, which seemed to be at that time a kind of a magical order. 1982, right? You said 1962. 19, I'm sorry. When the CDU yeah. came to power in... 1982. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the legal system compounded the extent of these restrictions by ruling on asylum law more and more restrictively. By 1977, legal interpretations of political persecution had shifted from including the fear of being persecuted to placing an emphasis on the political motivations that lay behind the persecution. 
the dramatic consequence of this was that the fear for torture was no longer a sufficient reason to grant asylum. This led to emotional debates about the general value of human rights in the West German society. In response, the Constitutional Court eventually recognized torture as a ground of granting asylum in 1990, which means 30 years later. This example demonstrated how polarized the atmosphere was. But until this point, supporters of a reform of the constitutional right and those against any change had neutralized each other in the political sphere in the 1980s. The real turning point was German unification. In order to understand why, I will now turn to the GDR or East Germany where the ruling communist party had total control over immigration. Till the 70s, there were two tendencies in granting asylum in East Germany or the GDR. The first was support for communist brother parties. This project was largely dependent on the Soviet Union's foreign policy interests. The second tendency was to drive to admit so-called political immigrants from former colonial empires as a buy to gain international recognition for the GDR. However, the absence of individual rights for asylum seekers contrasted sharply with their rule in communist propaganda. Refugees supposedly symbolized the opportunities offered by the GDR. This argument was increasingly important as internal political persecution increased and many East Germans left for the West in the 70s and later in the 80s. This propaganda characterized by catch-all phrases such as proletarian internalism enabled the state and its citizens to adapt xenophobic attitudes without contradicting general asylum policies. The onus was on immigrants to assimilate in the East German society, and they had no recourse for mistreatment. And also to explain the function of it, this was one of the few instances where public opinion and SED state government policy were totally in line in East Germany. Compared to the evolution of West German asylum policies, the situation in the GDR remained relatively static. The East Germans claimed to be upholding principles of solidarity was a far cry from reality. Their practice of political asylum can be seen as a continuation of German nationalistic migration policy based on the idea of an ethnical uniform German population, even in East Germany, and the predominance of the state over the individual. And this is what I meant, what influenced debates after the unification. The unification of Germany in 1990 shifted the balance of power towards those who wanted to silence debate on human rights and who favored a fundamental change to the constitutional provision on asylum. 
West Germany's ruling Conservative Party, the CDU, had capitalized on public resistance to migrants and refugees. After unification, they also catered on the negative attitude against refugees common in East Germany. After a heated debate and several racist-motivated attacks against refugees in both parts of the country, the Social Democratic Party, now in the opposition, gave in to the pressure and agreed to change the asylum provision in 1993. As in the early years of West Germany asylum policy, the conflict over asylum law and the resulting 1993 amendment must be seen in a broader context of immigration policies and debates over German identity. This constitutional reform was undertaken in a polarized atmosphere, neither sympathy for the refugees nor the challenge they pose to the German welfare state can explain the remarkable level of interest in asylum and refugees from the late 70s to the early 90s. In truth, these issues had always been tied to essential questions about the political and moral foundation of the West German or now the United German society. Behind both positions lay deeper value-based questions of identity. For some, an open refugee and asylum policy offered absolute proof of Germany's break with the national socialist and racist part. For others, such a position was unthinkable because to them it meant renouncing the German people's cultural and ethnic identity. This conflict ended with the constitutional amendment in 1993, now called Article 60A of the Basic Law, also known as the Asylum Compromise. The original sentence remained, but it was supplemented by four long paragraphs of restrictive conditions, which is very unusual for the German constitution. These specifications turned the most liberal law in the Western world into a very limited provision. Content-wise, the compromise was based on the premises that the right to asylum remained in the constitution, but in a modified form with the addition of the so-called third state rule. This change limited access to asylum by assuming that potential asylum seekers had already the possibility to apply in neighboring countries and therefore was outside of Germany's restriction. In the following years, all, and that is important, all German government tried to steer European asylum regulation towards such a model in which the responsibility of asylum decisions were shifted to the countries at the border of the European Union. For some advocates of the universal right of asylum, the compromise represented a defeat. However, it does not highlight how human rights became firmly anchored in the political culture of the now unified federal public. Whoa, it is a weak consolation to these advocates. 
some voices had even supported a complete abolition of the asylum law in these debates. In fact, the 1993 amendment can be seen as a settlement between the values of a democratic political system and the notion of a country shaped by ethnic and not geographical boundaries. Supporters of the reform thought that it end debates on immigration, but this was not the case. Immigration became or stayed or was still in the following decades a major issue in all domestic politics. And though asylum and immigration is increasingly negotiated at the European level, the conflict between national sovereignty and human rights in Germany persisted and will persist. Since 1993, Germany has reduced its very infrastructure of a humane and legally founded processing of asylum requests that were needed in what some people called the immigration crisis of 2015 or other called the summer of migration. The reason for this lies in the gradual decree of asylum seeker numbers in Germany, which fell under the magic 100,000 application mark in 2003. But this took 10 years to happen. This begs, from my perspective, the question whether the constitutional amendment was actually responsible for this decree. Or if perhaps the changing situation, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, had something to do with it, develops such as the stabilization of the former communist countries and the subsequent enlargement of the European Union certainly added to the complexity of the migration regime in Europe. But in the public perception, as well as in the action of the responsible politicians, this development has kept the illusion alive that regulating migration can protect one's own country from effect of international crisis. As long as the masses of the refugees remained in southern or southeastern Europe, the German government also rejected the idea of distributing asylum seeker, a very important point after 2015, on a quota-based system at the European level, and was only willing to offer financial compensation. Due to the developments in the Middle East and in the West Balkans by the summer of 2015, this system of blocking refugees at the border of the European Union has broken down. Germany, the geographic, economic, and political core country of the European Union, has again become the target destination for hundreds of thousands of refugees seeking asylum there. In many ways, the German public's reaction reminded us on the developments before 1993. Panic-stricken reactions in politics and in the media, mobilization of xenophobic and racist groups, and acts of violence aimed at refugee accommodations and at refugees themselves were seen all over the country. However, this time it is apparent that emerging problems can be overcome where citizens 
and initiative groups are ready to help, the executive branches not willing or not ready to act. And where administrative bodies are incompetent, that is where the commitment of helpers can save the state from failing to fulfill the humanitarian task. Germany coped with the increasing immigration numbers in 2050s. And its social, political, and economical system did not collapse as some observers had expected. In my view, the federal government seems to ignore the fact that there was no crisis for the federal republic, that there was a humanitarian crisis for the refugees, of course. Yet we still want to go back to the situation before 2015 and think that changing the rules and the laws is what is going to make that happen. But I personally think that is an illusion. At the basis, the conflict is the same as it was decades ago, and it is still an open question. Will the Germans and the Europeans choose to act in humanitarian solidarity, uphold the principle of human rights, or will they go back to the life behind fences, walls, and other barriers and set their hopes on the return of the European nation state as we saw it in the 19th century. This question is still open and, and asylum always brings this question in front. This brings me to the end of my lecture, this open question. I have some hopes, but no answer to this question. But I think as Bertolt Brecht said, if the question is open, there's still hope. So thank you for your attention. And I hope it was not too hard to listen to my voice. <laughs> and here are some uh, readings I recommend for the issue. I really love the book of Peter Guttrell. I think the book of Everway and Forster is very important to understand the development in refugee law. And I already published three articles in English, which might help you to understand what I actually meant. Thank you very much.